Well, good morning, Redeemer. Good morning, good morning. If you have a Bible, let's see how long it takes everyone to find Zechariah chapter 9. Start now. I'll, I'll get ready and I'll come back to you. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It's not fair. I had my marker there. It would have taken me 20 minutes otherwise. It's that one of those little books just like dropped right in the spot that's hard to find, isn't it? Well, uh, this morning what I want to do, always, the introduction before the introduction, is talk about the fact that we, you know, we talk a lot in this church about fighting the culture wars, fighting the unbelief and secularism of this world, and it's important if you're going to fight a culture war to have a culture. <laughs> and, and I, again, I'll go on record every week stating that I think part of our problem is that we do not. We don't have a culture. So, you know, we, here it is, Palm Sunday. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to celebrate this. Up north at our church plant, they, they have all the little children come in with giant palm branches and lay them down at the front of the stage. Uh, it's a very beautiful thing to see. Uh, we don't do that here, um, mostly because I'm super puritanical. <laughs> but it's important to understand why is it that we're stopping. I have one sermon left in Samuel, so why doesn't the dude just get it done? Why is he putting it off so that we come in here and talk about the triumphal entry? And I think that one of the reasons is because these are the holidays that actually should shape our calendar. Okay, I, don't get me wrong. I love a summer barbecue. I love having, right, you know, bank holidays are fantastic. But they are not the things with which Christians should be shaping their lives. Holy Week that begins today in which the Lord Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem to, to, to take hold of it and make it his capital, <laughs> to, to take it back from the forces of darkness, is a day that we ought to... Um, remember, it's a day that we ought to dedicate ourselves to. It's a, it's a holiday that we ought to observe. The second reason is, is actually found in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 10, this is what the apostle said. Now, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, Zechariah was not serving himself when he wrote his prophecies. He was serving you. He was serving you. He did not understand what he was writing uh, to the extent that you can now understand it. And, and we stop on days like this to look back to what the Israelites were hoping for and how they were told to rejoice in things that they did not themselves understand in order to teach us what we ought to rejoice in the fact that we do understand them. How much more should we rejoice? How much louder should our shouts be if we actually know how these things were fulfilled? And man, do we. Right? We know what happened. It is not a mystery to us. It is a mystery as to why us, right? Why has it been revealed to us? But what's revealed to us is no longer a mystery. The Lord Jesus has received all authority in heaven and on earth, and he is now the king of the cosmos. It's all his. There is nothing under the sun over which he is not the Lord. And so we're going to go back to the um, prophecies of Zechariah, which are extraordinarily difficult to understand if you just sit down and read them. 
But we can understand them. We can understand them better than the man who wrote them because the Lord Jesus is who he says he is, and he has sent us his Holy Spirit. And so today is all about this rejoicing. Easter is too big a thing to start celebrating it next Sunday morning. We're getting ready to celebrate it now. And with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your prophet Zechariah and his faithfulness to you, and his ministry to us. Uh, we, we know, Lord God, that he now sees in full what was merely a mystery to him. He knows now in full what was a mystery, even as he wrote this book. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the triumphal entry. We pray, God, that as we open your word this morning, that we would not only come to understand and know you better, but that we would understand and know ourselves better, that we would be faithful to your faithful one, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, and amen. Now, if we're going to just suddenly switch books, we're going to go from 2 Samuel to Zechariah. It is incumbent upon me to explain Zechariah in some some form. I, I have to explain it a little bit. So bear with me for a second. The book of Zechariah consists of multiple prophetic visions aimed at encouraging the returned exiles. Okay, The returned exiles were there in the land, and, and what the prophet comes to them and says, listen, you should rebuild the temple. You should rebuild it. Now imagine, why would they rebuild it? Right? They had it before. They lost it. They were God's people. They were sent into exile. They had a kingdom. It was taken from them. Why would they rebuild it? Well, Zechariah comes and says, listen, you ought to rebuild this temple. And the reason is because a king is going to come to this temple. The king is going to come. And, and that he's encouraging returned exiles who don't want to do the work that God has given them. Be, and and the, the reason they ought to do the work, he explains, is because a king is coming. Okay? There has got to be a temple for this king to come to. The whole prophetic work of Zechariah emphasizes that God is with them. And he is especially with their leaders. Okay? He is not distant from them. He is close. He knows what's happened to them. He is with them in the midst of what's happening to them now. And what he wants for them is faithfulness. He wants them to be faithful to what he has called them to do. This encouragement is a prophecy of a king who would return. But the oracles that Zechariah delivers to the people are full of paradox. They're full of mystery. We're going to read, right, if you go on and you read the latter half of Zechariah, you'll see that there is a king that comes who's slain. But even as he is slain, he triumphs over the people who slay him. Now, in in his day, how would those people have understood what that was to mean? But now we're like, oh, a king who in his death defeats his enemies. (laughs) Easy. We've heard this story before. It's called the gospel. And, And it's just, we forget so easily how profound these things are. Imagine receiving news that a king is coming, so you should be encouraged. Don't worry, he's going to die. But don't worry, that's going to defeat his enemies. And Zechariah and, and those people are like, okay, okay, that doesn't make any sense, but I guess let's build a temple. Zechariah tells them that God will punish the enemies, but even as he punishes them, they will come to bow their knees to him. Now, again, how does that work? Right? How, how do you defeat an enemy that then comes and worships you. It's, it's, it's very paradoxical. Well, we understand that Jesus came, and he defeated the nations, and now all the nations are flowing into his throne room. All of the nations are coming to him and bowing the knee. And for us, it's very simple, but imagine how profound it was in their day. Now, the, what concerns us specifically are chapters 9 through 14. 9 through 14 uh, consists of two oracles, Zechariah gives two prophecies. 
One of them has to do with the, the future of Israel, and the other has to do with the judgment of her enemies. In chapters 9 through 11, Zechariah looks toward the more immediate future, what's going to happen right then in that generation. But in the second oracle, verses, or chapters 12 through 14, he talks about the eschatological purpose of this coming king. He says there's a telos, there's a thing that isn't just immediate to you, that's in the future, that involves everybody. And again, how paradoxical. Why, does, why would Israel care about what happens at the end of time when they're suffering right now? But something about the way God gives us hope is he doesn't just tell us what he's going to do for us now. He tells us what he's going to do for humanity. Now think about that. Hope for you in your present circumstances includes hope for all of humanity. They're not separate. What is happening to us in our workaday lives is cosmic, is eternal, has eternal consequences. It ha- it's wrapped up in the story, not just what God is doing for you, but what he is doing for humanity. Now, the latter prophets, like Zechariah, use the language and images of earlier prophets. They, that's how they learned to be prophets. They learned how to communicate from previous prophets. They re- read the older prophets, and then, and then Zechariah sits down, and he, he knows how to write because he learned the language from others. And so his... Um, he, he quotes other uh, prophets like Jeremiah in chapters 1 and 7, but Zechariah chapters 11 through 13 are essentially a meditation on Isaiah and his songs of the suffering servant. If you read the songs of the suffering servant in Isaiah, and then you come back to Zechariah 11 and 12, and what you see is a prophet who's read those who is simply just meditating on what they might mean. And, and I, most, I didn't know this. I think most of us don't know this. But if, if you want to understand the prophetic word in the Old Testament and how it works, you can see how Zechariah would sit down and <laughs> – you okay there, buddy? You need a tissue? Okay, you're good. All right, good. See, I care about what's happening to you right now, not just the sermon. I, yeah, okay. So Zechariah sits down with Isaiah open. He reads it. He meditates upon it, and he himself writes a meditation about it. And this is very interesting to see how even the Old Testament authors interacted with other Old Testament authors. Now, the New Testament writers refer to Zechariah more than any other uh, of the prophets during the week of Jesus' crucifixion. They're referencing Zechariah constantly. And, and that's part of why we're doing this today. What, what was on their minds when they, were, they went back and they're saying, okay, here's what happened to Jesus in the week of his passion, and, and they constantly, to make, to make it understandable to Jews, are referring to the book of Zechariah. Specifically, this verse in Zechariah is quoted during the triumphal entry. Zechariah 9.9, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? So both Matthew 21, verse 5, and John 12, 15 quote this specific verse. So half the Gospels mention it in the triumphal entry stories. But in the week of Christ's passion, they refer to Zechariah, uh, the latter half of Zechariah, constantly. So that's why it's an important book to understand if you're going to understand Christology, if you're going to understand the Gospel, if you're going to understand who Jesus is and what he did. Now, this is the overall point. The immediate context and purpose the prophet's words to Israel is the same as the eternal application. The purpose for him giving these words to the people at the time is the same as the eternal application of this. 
the people of God will be restored by a king who is slain and in that slaying overcomes his enemies and ours. What they needed to know was exactly what we need to know. This is not one of those times where what they were given on the, on the day that they received this word is radically different than what we receive. The meaning is the same. They needed to know that a king would come that would deliver them. Um, and and he, adds this, the, he adds this little bit about the fact that in his defeating of his enemies, he will be slain himself. Now, if, you, if you've been paying attention to scripture, you know from Genesis 3.15 that we've been promised one who will come and himself be wounded even as he defeats the son, sons of Satan. And so he must be woundable, right? Uh, the Savior has to be somebody who, who can be wounded if he's going to receive an injury on his heel as he crushes the head of the snake. And so you see all this mystery. It goes back to what I was talking about from Peter. There's a lot of paradox in these things that they themselves did not understand. But what they were doing was giving us a buffet of glorious Christology where now we go through the Old Testament and we see, oh, this is about Jesus and this is about Jesus and this is about Jesus and this is what it means and this is what it means. In Zechariah's day, the returned exiles needed to know that what was happening to them was temporary, that a king was coming who was going to die and through that death overcome their, their enemies and his enemies. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, whatever you have going on, the thing that you need to hear, the thing that will give you hope, the only thing that will help in what you're going through now is to know that there is a king who suffers and dies on your behalf, and in that suffering and dying, he overcomes your enemies and his. The people of God may know more now than they did in Zechariah's day, but the message remains the same. The, re- the message remains the same. Now, Zechariah... 9, 9. I'm going to read it again, and then what I'm going to do is just walk through it and see how the hope that they were looking forward to is now something that we look back and, and grab hold of with our faith. Okay? Grab hold of by faith, and, and it gives us hope. What they were looking forward to is what we're looking backwards to, what we know, what we're reminding ourselves of all the time. This is Zechariah 9, 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, verse 9 juxtaposes... <coughs> excuse me. Verse 9 juxtaposes the concepts of response to the arrival of a king and the description of the king himself. So what we have here is this, is this is how you should respond to this person who is coming. So this is how you specifically respond to a person and hear some specifics about him, okay, so that you will recognize him when he comes. Zechariah knew the arrogance of the world's most influential kings, the kind of arrogance Ezekiel condemned in Ezekiel 28. If you, this is just um, to help you understand <laughs> what the other kings at the, to- at the time were like. So Zechariah is going to give us a prophecy of what this coming king is like. But let, listen to what the, uh, another prophet, Ezekiel, he explains to us exactly what the kings of the time were like. In Ezekiel chapter 28, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyr, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a god, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no god. Though you make your heart like the heart of a god, you are indeed wiser than Daniel. 
No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and your trade, you have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom. So I'm going to stop there. Now, Ezekiel is, is telling us here what the other kings in the ancient Near East were like in, in these days. They're wise, they're rich, and they are so successful at what they're doing that they refer to themselves as gods. Right? This was the problem in the first century. Caesars were calling themselves lords, saying that they, right, they are to be worshipped. And, and this is not uncommon. These ancient kings had a lot of gold, a lot of swag, a lot of horses, a lot of chariots. They were very wise. They had a lot of ships that went to foreign parts and brought back wealth. Does that sound like any nation you know? Anyway, so the, the, the worldly nations are, always look like this. Right? Have you ever seen a presidential motorcade? Okay, I've seen a residential motorcade. One time I was walking downtown when I worked for Steve, and uh, I, I hear the, the sirens start up, and out comes the, the motorcycles from the police department. The one on the first bike was my father, which I didn't even know he, he was going to be doing it that day. That was pretty remarkable. But then comes all 30 motorcycles, right? Four armored cars, three uh, limousines. You're not sure which one is the president's. Three more armored cars, and then a bunch more motorcycles. And it's like, that is a lot of pomp. You know how expensive those, those cars are? So then I asked my dad, well, what's with the three armored cars? What, what is that all about? And he said, well, those are wet teams. I said, well, what, what do you mean? Well, if anyone shoots at the president's car, they just open the doors and start shooting at people. They, they just, whoever is shooting, they shoot at them, and they just take care of the whole problem, and all the other cars drive away. So you drive around with an army in case somebody, I don't know, in Belltown is going to ask for directions. I don't know. I don't know. It's very confusing. But you have all this pomp and all this circumstance. If you go down to um, the museum in South Seattle, you can go on and see what Air Force One looks like. Right? It's an, and, and it's nicer than any airplane I've ever been on, and they stopped using it in the 80s. Okay? <laughs> the kings of the nations always look this way. They always look this way. They are wealthy, wise, and all-powerful, and like to be worshipped, just like the orange man. Okay. The, um, so what we have is this. This is the setup. And the returning exiles who know something about this because they've been watching these kings run, uh, run here, there, and everywhere all over the ancient Near East, running over all these tiny kingdoms like their own, uh, um, taking all the gold from the temple, taking all the prizes, right? Solomon used to have a pretty extensive trade uh, mechanism. All of that's now in the hands of these foreign kings. They, they see what, what a king is, looks like. Now, Zechariah proclaims to them that though they are grief and sorrow are taking hold of their hearts they ought yet to strive manfully to receive the favor of god okay this whole introduction to them in this first half of the of the verse is to get them to look beyond their current circumstances the messianic prophecy begins with the lord's exhortation addressed to the daughter of zion the daughter of jerusalem so here is the prophet of god and he's going he's talking to the sons of god no, he says the daughters, right? Oh, daughter of Jerusalem, daughter of Zion. Now, the poetic parallelism between the word pairs employs a rhetorical device in which the name of the city, Zion or Jerusalem, stands for the, all of its inhabitants. So when he says Jerusalem, when he says Zion, he means all the people in it. He's referring to them as his daughter. 
He's referring to them as his child. So Yahweh is not far off. Both titles um, show personal relationship between the Lord and his people. He's near and dear as a mother, nurturing his children under her wing, even as hens with chicks. Now, see how I'm just going back and forth between his and her? Yes, I'm doing that. Our God in heaven is not, he wants Israel to know of him, know him like one would know their own mother. Now, he tells them to rejoice greatly at this very personal God, and it's a command, it's not a request. The word that is in Hebrew is a command. You will rejoice. It's not an option. You will rejoice. Now, this concept that um, Yahweh is the mother of Israel, that he, he loves his daughter in this way, is found in the words of Jesus. In Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. This is how the apostles understood their own ministry. 1 Thessalonians 2.7, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now the ministry of, the, uh, of, of Israel is supposed to reflect the ministry of its God. And, and God's ministry to us is like a nursing mother, is like a hen, right? Have you guys ever seen those, those cartoons or a picture of a mother hen with her wings out and all the little chicks are there and she's protecting them? That is what your God is like. That is what your God is like. And, and this also plays out in other symbolic language when they talk about the wings of the Lord's covenant, right? He, they, Ruth refers to the covenant as these wings that cover her and protect her. She talks about the, the wings of um, Boaz's clothes and how she covers herself the night that she tries to win him over with her um, respect and honor, right? There's this concept in which the wings cover those, and it's a covenantal protection. The covenant of God is like uh, the, the wings of a hen over you, his little chicks. Now, isn't that a glorious image of what our God is like? Because we, we're used to the bearded old dude in heaven who throws down thunderbolts. We're used to Jesus, and he goes, right, we talk about Jesus with a rod a scepter in his hand. He's going to smash people with iron. We're used to that kind of language, especially in our circles. We love the dominion stuff. But we cannot forget that our Lord loves us and cares for us, right? The, if you imagine a mother in her kitchen with her dirty apron, wiping the, the boogers away from her kid's face, that is what the Lord God is like. That is what he is like, nurturing, protecting, feeding. The, this tender care is ours, it's the balm for the wearied and overwrought soul. This protection within the wings of the Lord's apron, our tender parent who longs to comfort us and protect us and feed us. So even as we're talking here, this is a prophecy about the Lord Jesus entering into Jerusalem. What, what was his own opinion of Jerusalem? He would have rather come to Jerusalem like a mother hen. But they rejected him. And anyone who rejects him now finds him coming as a conquering king. What does Psalm 2 say? It says, kiss the son or he will smash you with a rod of iron. Who, what would you rather have, the God who comes to you as a hen or the God who comes to you with a rod of iron? I think that's an easy answer, right? It's an easy answer. But this is, the, this is what Zechariah is talking about. Now, did he have any idea? Did he have any idea Yahweh would come down out of the deep heavens and walk into Jerusalem, stand on the hill over Jerusalem, and say, I would have come to you like, like a hen comes to her chicks? This is the God that you serve. This is the God that has revealed himself to you. 
This is why we should rejoice. This is why we should shout. This is why we should make a big noise and celebrate what the Lord God is doing, what we're, what we're remembering that he has done already this coming week. Now, Zechariah adds this understanding by saying that another reason to, give, to be joyous and respond to the Lord is because, uh, the, because there is a king who is coming. And, and when, when Israel is being encouraged by the prophets uh, that don't worry, everything is going to be fine, that statement is always coupled with this idea that a king is coming. The king himself represents the safety, represents the hope, represents the restoration. Now, Zechariah calls attention to four things about this coming king. Four things. He tells us that he will be righteous. Now, this is a Hebrew term that is one of the most important theological terms in the whole Bible. So you have this nurturing mother, and now you have a king, and this king is, is and now we're going to list the things. He's righteous. He is a righteous man. He's a righteous king. Now, in its most basic biblical sense, righteousness reflects conformity to an established standard. That's what righteousness means. Okay, when I say righteous, it's not random. It's not whatever you think is good or worthwhile or moral or ethically good. Righteousness is, is conforming yourself to a set standard that already exists. Now, in Leviticus chapter 19, we understand that what righteousness has to do with weights and measures. Weights and measures and righteousness go hand in hand. It says in Leviticus 19, 36 to 37, you shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. So what, what Yahweh is doing here is, is connecting the idea that balanced weights and measures are equal to righteousness. He, he's come. He is our Lord. He has delivered us. Therefore, you are people who balance things, who make right judgments. The judgments of the righteous king should be balanced and accurate like a market scale. Right now, how often are the kingdoms of the world and how often are the, are, the, are the judgments of the nations balanced like a market scale? Right? We're used to being robbed. We're used to being cheated. We're used to that. Right? If, if you go down to the market uh, back in the day, how, how easy is it for a man to sort of mess around with the – I remember at Starbucks, you, you used to be able to actually change the settings on the machine so that people got smaller shots than what they thought. And, 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 and I remember there were some managers who were, they would run into problems um, because they were get, the, they were, the cost was too high on the coffee beans. And so their answer was go and change, change, change the med- So later when I became a Christian, I thought, oh, I think that's what Proverbs means. You're not supposed to do that stuff, right? And how often do the friends of the president or congressman get out of, right? They, they don't use just scales, Right? It's not just business that we want just scales. We also want just scales when it comes to the civil magistrate. And that's what we're being told. This king is going to come, and he's going to be righteous. He's going to have a just and accurate scale. Now, the, um, this standard, this righteous standard, this just and accurate scale, uh, is reflect the character of God himself. Psalm 119 it says, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. So God's rules are not unfair. God's rules are balanced. God's rules are accurate. And anything, any righteousness that you have in this world is a reflection of him and his character. Now, this righteousness is also given to the king. In Psalm 72, it says, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the, your royal son. 
Now, these two concepts, that it's a reflection of God's character and that it's given to the king, the God, God's son, is seen in the life and work of Jesus, our Lord. In Romans chapter 1, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The justice of God is revealed. The balanced and accurate scale is revealed in the Lord Jesus. Then later in Romans 3, it says, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So, so the justice and balance and goodness of the Lord has been revealed in Jesus. He is the king. He's the son of God. He reflects the righteousness of God in heaven in everything he says and everything he does. Now, John Wesley stated that Christ's righteousness is the image of God. When you look at Jesus, you see the righteousness of God. And this is what Zechariah is talking about. This king that will come will be righteous. And, and what does that mean? It's not just that he's going to be just. He's going to reflect the very righteousness, the righteous character of God himself. Spurgeon said, Christ in his life was so righteous that we may say of the life taken as a whole that it is righteousness itself. Christ is the law incarnate. Understand me, he lived out the law of God to the very full, and while we see God's precepts written in fire on Sinai's brow, you see them written in flesh in the person of Christ. This is what the apostle means when they say that we are now under the law of Christ and not Moses. Our law is Christ, for he is the righteousness of God. He is the standard by which all moral scales are to be calibrated. Now this, and... and this is why it's so hard for us. So you go back to the Old Testament law, and you're like, man, look at all these. The rules are just written down. Okay, and how, how easy was that for everyone to follow? Okay, it's a rhetorical question. Okay, now we're given a person. You just do what he did. Oh, okay, do what he did. Easy enough. So you go to the scriptures, and it says, yeah, even if you think of a woman lustfully in your mind, you've already sinned. And you're like, okay, well, how, how about we go back to the written rules? That seems easier. <laughs> what we see in the life of Christ is the life that every Christian should live. And, and because he knew we couldn't, right? He, he said, here, let me show you how to do it. And then because I know you're going to fail, let me die on your behalf. Remember, this is the king who dies, and by dying, delivers us from our enemies. One of those enemies is the law itself. One of those enemies is the law itself. Now, this righteousness that comes into the world in this king is what the Lord wants all of his people collectively to have. This is what I'm talking about. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord for our, our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are his, this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we be, are careful to do all the commandments before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So you see that in the Old Testament law and in the new law in Christ, the, the, the end result is the same. You are supposed to do this righteousness. You are supposed to be righteous in this fashion. Now, here is Zechariah writing this to the people. Right? He's talking about this righteousness. And did they have any idea at all that Christ would come, and because he came, he would make it possible for the Holy Spirit to descend upon us so that we might actually keep the law? Because this is something that's very controversial, especially right now. You, you have a desire that rises up in you, and you say no to it, and you overcome it. There is a temptation, and you flee to Christ, and you overcome the temptation. Where did that ability come from? God. 
Is it something you should be proud of and boast in? Yes. Are you something to be proud of and boasted in? No. But this righteousness that came down out of heaven remained upon the people of God so that we could actually put our lives in order. Now, how, how so many of us were converted later in life, and we know that this is true. You could take an absolute train wreck, like somebody like Mike Kloss, and now he's standing up here telling everybody about righteousness. And you could go back to my high school graduating class, and you could tell them that this would happen, and they would think you're nuts. Right? They would think you're out of your mind. And this is the righteousness that's come into the world that takes morons and sinners and fools and people who couldn't be further from God and brings them not only near to God, but remakes them so that they are like God. Because the righteousness that he's talking about that comes in this king isn't just a righteousness that comes and leaves. It's a righteousness that comes, saves us, and remains upon us. So that now, when we're tempted, you say, no, now we can resist the devil. Why? Because he's already been beaten. They had no idea what they were talking about. We do, and we take it for granted. We take it for granted. We're like, oh, righteousness, great, super. (laughs) But this righteousness didn't go back into heaven and remain there with Christ. It stayed here with us. Now, the second thing the Messiah does is he comes having salvation. That is, bringing salvation to his people. Now, in the Hebrew, the word takes on the connotation here of military victory, which is another um, form of salvation in the Old Testament. But we understand that it's more than just winning on a battlefield. It's not less than that. It's more than that. Now, one can hardly read Zechariah's vision about the future king without appreciating the hope of a Messiah who has salvation and offers it to Judah. Again, he comes with this salvation. And he doesn't say he gives it to everyone. He doesn't say he's coming with something to bestow. He just comes and he has salvation. But what we know is that he came with this salvation. He, 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 with his own blood, secured this salvation and did not take it with him into heaven and, and put, left it here with us. These things that he came were gifts in his left hand and his right hand that he has bestowed upon the people. They had no idea what Zechariah was saying. This king who comes in righteousness and salvation comes to make his people righteous and to save them. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The Lord Jesus came into this world. He himself was righteous. He had salvation. His name is what? Jesus is the one who saves. That's what his name means. And he came with these things so that he would take a people and give that righteousness and salvation to them and leave them not as he found them. The extent of the victory that fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah is staggering compared to the expectation. Right? It's as if you were promised a lifetime supply of water, and you think, oh, this is great. I'm, I'm going to win a lifetime supply of water. That must mean they're going to come and dig a well in my backyard. But instead, you're given the deed to the Great Lakes. Now, if you, <laughs> the guy comes up and he's like, good job. Okay, we promised you that you were going to have water in abundance. And you thought it was going to be a well, and you actually now own all of the Great Lakes. Now, imagine if someone promised you, don't worry, don't worry. I'm going to give you a fish so that you can eat. And you're like, oh, this is going to be good. I really like fish. 
And then they roll up with a truck at your house, and it's a great whale, right? It's a huge whale, and you're like, I can't eat all this. This is too much for me. Maybe I'll have a party and invite all my friends. Now, especially right now, I'm going to use this one. It's as if someone promises you a nice gun, and you think it's a 22 Ruger, but instead what rolls up in front of your house is an Abrams tank. And you're like, okay, this is better. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and what we see in Zechariah's prophecies, it's good news. If you're going to receive a king who's just, a king who uses righteous scales, a king who has salvation, if you're going to, right, imagine if we had a person like that in the White House. It's been a while. How great would that be? And, and they are sitting there thinking, yeah, that would be nice. You know? That, you know, maybe we should rebuild this temple if this is what we're going to have. We're going to have a king like this. But it's nothing like what they think. This king who comes, who's just and righteous and has salvation, comes to people and he defeats Satan, sin, and death and makes a new kingdom and makes a new people that are even now conquering the world. And how are we doing it? Through righteousness, through salvation, right? Through becoming disciples who make disciples, by becoming his people. He didn't just come with these things and hang on to them for himself. He came with these things in his hands and openly gave them to all of us. Now, he t- he, he's connecting these ideas here of righteousness and salvation because the prophets often did this. In Isaiah 45, it says, Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Second Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to say that again. Now, there's Peter sitting down. He's going to write a letter to encourage some people. And imagine him saying for a moment, this is a man who ate fish with Jesus. This is a man who walked with Jesus. This is a man who shared a blankie with Jesus. This is a man who knew Jesus face to face. And he says to you that what you have that, he is, that the Lord Jesus has given to you is equal to what he has. And right there, all of us are like, eh, I'm going to need to look at the Greek. Maybe we're confused by that translation. And the reality is, that those of us who have received the Lord Jesus, who have received his spirit, who are standing now 2,000 years down the road of his initial victory, have no idea what we have received. Peter is, is calling it equal to his own. We're looking back at Zechariah, and they were just expecting a good king. And we find out that it wasn't just a good king. It's a king that totally remakes the entire cosmos and takes people like you and me and makes them part of this grand, overwhelming army that is now conquering the world. So there you are, knitting, right, donning the socks. There you are, fixing the car. There you are, stirring the soup. There you are, trying to love your neighbor, and it's really hard. There you are, trying to do the math problems, and you think, you know, it can't get any worse than this. Trust me, kids, it can. There you are, trying, and you're trying, and you're trying. And we, we need to hear stories like this. You are, even as in your day-to-day life, as you're overcoming the sin in your own heart and the sin in your household and the sin in your workplace and the sin in your community, you are overcoming the world. And it's, and it's not resisting you, and you're overcoming it because it's already been overcome. And 
And what they were looking forward to is the thing that we have received. And it's so much greater than what they thought was coming. I can hardly even explain it. Now, Zechariah is not done yet. I feel like we should be done. And this is my, exactly my point. What else is there to be said? Except there's more to be said. He's not done yet. Now, I hope you're all more encouraged than you were. I hope even now you're challenged by what I'm saying. Even now, I really truly feel like I should just close this book and I will walk off the stage and be done. But there's, I'm not done. We have no idea what we've received. And I'm going to collect myself now and continue to tell you. Zechariah goes on and says that this king who is coming will be humble and lowly. Now, the same term describing this, this humility that he's describing is used of Moses in Numbers 12.3. The word can also mean poor, as in Zechariah 7.10, or afflicted in Isaiah 14.32. So this humble, this poor, this afflicted king, the humility of the Messianic king echoes themes in Isaiah, which prominently state both the Messiah's righteousness and his humility. Isaiah 53, 2-3, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He's not like the Prince of Tyre with his pomp. He's not a guy who drives around with a motorcade. He's not a guy who, who dresses in really nice Italian suits and has somebody doing his makeup so he can go on TV. He's a man that if you saw him, you'd be like, it's a dude. He's not impressive. And why did he come? Not, right? He's not only not impressive to look at, which is humbling enough. He came to suffer on our behalf. He came to suffer alongside of us. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Come to me, all you, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is what the Lord Jesus has to say. Matthew connects Isaiah's description of the Messiah with the words and character of Jesus Christ in, in a compelling fashion that no, none of us can overlook. As Thomas Goodwin, the English pastor, explains, we are apt to think that he, being so holy, is therefore of a severe and sour disposition against sinners and not able to bear them. No, says he, I am meek, gentleness is my nature and temper. Goodwin is saying that this high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numbed sufferers. Such embrace is precisely what he loves to do. He cannot bear to hold back from you. Because we start to talk about the grandioseness of God, right? This transcendent God. And we think that he's like a, guy, like a little boy who, who's like afraid to touch a slug, right? Now, if you have sons or daughters, for that matter, it's even worse. And you have a slug in the front yard, and you're like, hey, the slug's on the walk. Get it out of there. And the kid's like, Ew. 
And that's what we think this God is like. He doesn't want to touch sinners. But remember the Gospels. Jesus is so clean that he can touch a leper and the leprosy doesn't affect him. He affects the leprosy. And and he never holds his hand back from a leper. He never holds his hand back with someone with a flow of blood. He never holds his hand back from the poor and the wretched. He never holds his hand back. It's why he came. And all of that authority and majesty and glory that we can hardly even imagine was his, and he came with it in the power of it to sinners, to lepers, to the broken, to the suffering. John Newton wrote, he is king of nations, king of the worlds, but the text speaks of him as the king of saints, of Zion. His kingdom is not of the world, nor like the kingdoms of the world. Happy are his subjects that dwell under his shadow. He rules them with a golden scepter of love and has an iron rod to bruise and break the power of their enemies. He reigns in his own right and by their full and free consent in their hearts. He reigns upon a throne of grace having authority to pardon all sins, fullness to supply all wants, power to subdue all opposition. He touches our hurts and hearts as a mother touches the hurting child. And woe to anyone who raises his hand against us. Woe. Now to tie all this together, this king is going to come riding on a donkey. Now why a donkey? Well, we can go back to Genesis 49, and we can talk about the first prophecy of Judah and how he's going. They're, there's, they're tying the, the fact that Judah is going to be the ruling tribe to the fact that they're riding a donkey. There is that. In um, 2 Samuel 16:2, David rides upon a donkey. Right, this imagery exists in the Old Testament. But why does this imagery exist in the Old Testament? Well, one of the reasons is because horses, horses are an advanced military weapon. Now, I understand for us they're a hobby. If, you know, Lanny Brown has a horse. It's an expensive hobby. Thank you, Steve. And it's something that she gets to do when it's sunny out. It's lovely. It's nice. But back then, it was like owning a F-16. You're like, man, look at that rock you have over there. How do you like my F-16? And you look over, and it's a giant horse that you can sit on and ride faster than everyone else. And if you're really good, you can shoot a bow and arrow from it. And in those days, that kind of makes you better than everyone else. And so horses are... Are, are the top-of-the-line military equipment. They are also something that kings usually rode. They usually have big, beautiful horses. They race them. They keep stables of them. They have all these people that have to take care of them. right? And, and, and what they symbolize is a conquering king. But the lowly ass, right? something that you don't usually think of. right? When you think of ass in our culture now, cartoons, pop culture, what, what, the donkey is what exactly? It's a beast of burden. It's something that people don't even, like, who even has one? There's one that lives down by our house, actually. This lady has one in the field, and I always thought, what the weirdest pet in the history of pets? Why do you have a donkey, of all things? And it's ugly, and it smells bad, and you always know when you're near their house because you hear it, it's really loud. And you think, okay, if you had a farm and you had to work the land, fine. But everybody now, why do you need a donkey? Because you can get a tractor. So even in our own day, they're despised, but they're even more despised than it was the lowest level of animal that you get to carry stuff for you. And, and the lowest animal that you can get to carry stuff for you is the one in which this Messiah is going to sit upon. Why? Because he's lovely. Why? Because he's not a, a conquering king in the same way. He comes and he brings peace. And he brings peace not by destroying you, but by being destroyed for you. 
Zechariah proclaims that the Christ would be preserved, not in the weapons of warfare according to man's wisdom, but would prove superior to his enemies through a divine power. I think that's ultimately what Zechariah is getting at. John Calvin made this point. He says, if Christ then is poor, he cannot preserve his own people, nor can he prosper in his kingdom. It hence follows that he must be furnished with celestial power in order to continue himself safe and in order to prevent harm to his church. So in one sense, the king that he is describing has got to have some divine help because, man, if all you've got is a little donkey, the chariots of Egypt are going to run all over you. If all you are riding out to war on is a little donkey, the legions of Rome will slaughter you. And so the very, it's kind of like Genesis 3.15. What they're implying here is that the, the, the lowly king on his little donkey is going to ride out there and somehow some divine help is going to come to make him successful. And they, didn't, they couldn't have possibly understood that, right? This is John Calvin sitting down in his library thinking hard about these things some 1,500 years after the, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this king is going to have to have divine help. Now, God's ways are not man's ways. It, you know, for, in conclusion here, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10, it says this. It says, I will cut off the chariot from a frame, the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. How is this donkey-riding lowly king going to do that? The Messiah would remove war horses from Jerusalem and other weapons of warfare when his kingdom begins. Symbolically, it's new Messiah, riding a beast of burden, not an animal known for its value, powerfully underscores the peaceable kingdom over which the Messiah will rule. The peaceable way, the passive way, the divine way in which he comes and conquers. The symbolism of riding a donkey emphasizes this mission, and it foreshadows the meek and humble army that now serves the risen Lord. Right? We are the beast of burden that the king is riding upon. That spreads over the whole earth, conquers not with guns and grenades, but with sermons and singing. Right? This lowly king rides upon us, the beast of burden. And we are lowly, aren't we? Right? <laughs> What's the average income of the families in this church? Right? It, we, 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 I can stand up here and say outrageous things, and still to this point, no one cares. Right? We're not that impressive. I honestly don't think in our generation we ever will be. Not in the way that the world deems it. Why? Because we're an ass that the, that the Lord God is riding right on conquering the nations. We are a beast of burden. We are lowly and humble. And yet what we are told here is that this king will break every all of the weapons that the nations have to fight their wars. He is going to bring peace. He is going to bring justice. He is going to bring salvation. And we know it's true. And he's, he's continuing to do it. And what do we do? What do we do? Right? We get together on Saturday morning yesterday with some of the men, and we have a class. Right? The ladies get together, and they celebrate the birth of a new baby. We have Bible studies. We have co-ops. We have Christian schools. We go to our work and we, and we find out what's going on in our neighbors and our co-workers' lives and we pray for them. The things that we are doing are not the things that you would typically think of conquest. And yet it is the thing that is conquering the entire world. The sum of the whole is that the predictions by which God gave to his chosen people a hope of redemption were not vain or void. For at length in due time, Christ, the son of David, did actually come forth. 
right? And, and what, what was the promise? What was the hope? Why did they mention a king? 2 Samuel 7.16, your house and your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The Old Testament often reminds us, its readers, that the Messiah must descend from David. Ezekiel 37, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd, and they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their, and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And what we find out is that this does not look like what people thought it was going to look like. It looks even better than what they were told it was going to look like. In a kingless era, the Jews were told by Zechariah to look for the coming of the ruler that God would send, who fits and fulfills the messianic expectations of the Old Testament. Here is a king who is just and having salvation, who comes in meekness and affliction. David Barron writes, The prophecy was intended to introduce, in contrast to earthly warfare and kingly triumph, another kingdom, of which the just king would be the peace of, prince of peace, who was meek and lowly in his advent, who would speak peace to the heathen, whose sway would yet extend to earth's utmost bounds. If ever was a true picture of the Messiah king and his kingdom, it is this. And if ever Israel was to have a Messiah or the world a savior, he must be such as is described in this prophecy, not merely in the letter, but in the spirit of it. Israel looked back to David in hopes of a greater David. We look back to the greater David in hope of the return of the king after his last enemy death is defeated. Jesus entered Jerusalem. He did. He confronted death head on, overcoming his own tomb that he might empty the world of, its, of the everlasting power of the tomb. Jesus entered the world. He entered Jerusalem, into the tomb, into his victorious reign over the cosmos. Behold, this is your king. Now, knowing all of this, I'm going to go back and I'm going to join my brother Zechariah and I'm going to tell you this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and amen. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of Zechariah and his prophetic word. We thank you, Lord, that you are constantly um, stretching our expectation of who you are and what you are doing on our behalf. Father, that you are constantly reminding us of the great and glorious promises that we have received from you in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that as we go from here, that we would ponder these things, that we would um, come to see Christ anew, that we would rejoice in him, that we would make a joyful and, and loud shout, and that we would glorify you, Lord, in, in our everyday, workaday lives, for you are with us, and you care for us as a hen cares for her chicks. And amen. <laughs>